So having read about Angulimala yesterday, Venerable Angulimala, then today I uh, thought I would continue along that same theme of great disciples. And for me, I find this very inspiring just because I can imagine that these great disciples of the Buddha were human beings just like us, the same tendencies, the same foibles and difficulties and obstacles they had to overcome. So for me, I find it uh, quite inspiring reading about some of these great disciples. So this evening I'll read about Venerable Anuruddha, and I won't read the whole chapter, but I'll, I'll read a better part of it and then see if we can finish up uh, Lungta Mahabua talking about his own life and his how he, how he came to and uh, cultivated the practice. This is from Great Disciples of the Buddha. Anuruddha, Master of the Divine Eye. And this is Helmuth Hecker, who's a great scholar of world religions. Uh, very, very good at writing narratives around, about these Buddhist great disciples. Like Ananda, Anuruddha was a noble of the Sakyan clan and a cousin of the Buddha. He and Ananda were begotten by the same father, the Sakyan prince Amitodana though their mothers must have been different as the texts do not refer to the two as brothers and imply that they grew up in different households. Anuruddha's full brother was Mahanama the Sakyan, and he also had a sister named Rohini. As a youth from an aristocratic clan, Anuruddha was raised in luxury. The texts describe his early years in the same terms they used to describe the Bodhisattva's upbringing. This is from the Vinaya. Anuruddha the Sakyan was delicately nurtured. He had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season, being waited on in his palace for the four months of the rains by female musicians. He did not come down from that palace. So probably we can't really relate to that part of it. A charming story recorded in the Dhammapada commentary reveals to us the blissful oblivion and innocence in which Anuruddha grew up. It is said that in his youth he lived in such luxury that he had never heard the word or the phrase, there isn't any, which is nati, for whatever he might want. His desire would be immediately fulfilled. One day Anuruddha was playing at marbles with five other Sakyan youths and he had bet cakes on the result. The first three times he lost and sent home to his mother for cakes, and three times his mother promptly supplied them. When he lost the fourth time, however, and again sent for cakes, his mother replied, there isn't any cake to send, nati pu wang. Since Anuruddha had never before heard the expression, there isn't any, he assumed this nati pu wang must be a kind of cake. So he sent a man to his mother with the message, send me some, there isn't any cakes. To teach him a lesson, his mother sent him an empty platter, but even then fortune was still on his side. Owing to his past merits from an earlier life, the gods were determined that Anuruddha should not be disappointed, and thus they filled the empty planter with delicious celestial cakes. When Anuruddha tasted them, he was so delighted that he repeatedly sent back to his mother for more platters of there isn't any cakes, and by the time each platter arrived, it had been filled with the heavenly delicacies. Thus, Anuruddha passed his early years in the joyful pursuit of fleeting pleasures, giving little thought to the meaning and purpose of existence. 
The turning point in his life came shortly after his illustrious cousin, the Buddha, visited Kapilavatu. By his example and his teaching, the Buddha had inspired many of his relatives to go forth into, ho- into the homeless life as monks. One day, Aniruddha's brother, Mahanama, reflected on the fact that while many distinguished Sakyans had gone forth, no one from their own family had done so. He then approached Aniruddha and told him what he had been thinking, concluding with an ultimatum. Well, now, either you go forth or I will go forth. For Aniruddha, such a command must have come as a shock, and he demurred. But I have been delicately nurtured. I am not able to go forth from home into homelessness. You go forth. Mahanama then vividly described to him the burdens of a householder's life that he would have to shoulder. First, the fields have to be plowed. Then they must be sown. Then water must be led into them. Then the water must be led away. Then the weeds must be dug up. Then the crop must be reaped. Then it must be harvested. Then it must be made into stocks. Then you must have them threshed. Then you must have the straw winnowed. Then you must have the chaff winnowed. Then you must have the chaff sifted. Then you must have it brought in. And the same must be done the next year and the year after that. Anaruta inquired, When will the work stop? When will an end to the work be discerned? When will we be able to amuse ourselves unconcerned, supplied and furnished with the five cords of sensual pleasure? His brother replied sharply, There is no stop to the work, my dear Aniruta. No end to the work is ever to be discerned. Even when our fathers and grandfathers passed away, the work was not to be stopped. By the time he finished speaking, Aniruta had already made up his mind. You look after what belongs to the household life, brother. I will go forth from home into homelessness. The thought of endless cycle of strife and toil and the even more vicious cycle of rebirth had awakened in him a sense of urgency. He saw himself bound to struggle again and again through every moment of his life, then to die and take birth elsewhere over and over in an endless round. When he saw this, his present life appeared to him insipid and meaningless, and the one hopeful alternative, which now seemed increasingly attractive, was to follow his cousin into homelessness and struggle to break through the cycle of repeated becoming. Immediately, he went to his mother and asked for her permission to become a monk. She, however, refused, unwilling to be separated from even one of her sons. But when Adaruta insisted, she told him that if his friend, Prince Badia, the Sakyan chieftain, would be willing to enter the order, then she would give him her permission. She must have been convinced that Badia would never give up the privileges of rulership and that Anuruddha would then choose to remain in the household life with his friend. Anuruddha next went to Badia and told him, My ordination depends on yours. Let us go forth together into homelessness. Badia replied, Whether it depends on me or not, there should be ordination. I with you. Here he stopped in the middle of the sentence. He had wanted to say, I shall come with you, but broke off because of feelings of regret. Overcome by attachment to worldly power and pleasure, he could only say, go and be ordained according to your wish. But Aniruddha pleaded with him again and again, come friend, let both of us go forth. When Badia saw how earnest his friend was, he softened and said, wait friend for seven years. After seven years, we will both go forth from home into homelessness. But Aniruddha replied, seven years is too long, friend. I cannot wait for seven years. 
by his repeated entreaties, Anuruddha forced Bhatia step by step to reduce the delay to seven days, the time he would need to settle his worldly affairs and install his successor. He was true to his word, and so Anuruddha was free to go with him. Anuruddha's example induced other Sakyan princes, too, to follow their great kinsman, the Buddha, and join his fraternity of monks. Thus, when the appointed day arrived, six Sakyan princes, together with Upali, the court barber, and an armed escort, set out from their homes. They were the Sakyans Bhadiya, Anuruddha, Ananda, Bhagu, Kimbila, and Devadatta. To avoid arousing suspicion over the purpose of their departure, they left as if they were going to the pleasure gardens for an outing. Having gone a long distance, they then sent the escort back and entered the neighboring principality. There they took off their ornaments, tied them into a bundle, and gave them to Upali, saying, This will be enough for your livelihood. Now return home. But the barber Upali, while already on his way back, stopped and thought, The Sakins are a fierce people. They will think that I have murdered the youths and they might kill me. He hung the bundle on a tree and hurried back to join the princes. He told them of his fears and said, If you, O princes, are going forth into the homeless life, why shouldn't I do the same? The young Sakians, too, thought Upali was right in not going back and allowed him to join them on their way to see the Blessed One. Having come into the Master's presence, they asked him for ordination, adding, We Sakians are a proud people, Lord. This Upali the barber has attended on us for a long time. Please, Lord, give him ordination first. Since he will then be our senior, we shall have to salute him and do the duties proper to his seniority. Thus our Sakyan pride will be humbled. The Buddha did as requested, and thus these seven received ordination with Upali as the first. Within one year, most of them had achieved some spiritual attainment. Bhadiya was the first to attain arhantship, as one endowed with the three true knowledges. Anuruddha acquired the divine eye, Ananda, the fruit of stream entry, and Devadatta, ordinary supernormal powers. Bhagu, Kimbila, and Upali became arhants later, as did Ananda and Anuruddha, but Devadatta's reckless ambition and misdeeds led him to hell. The struggle for arhantship. The divine eye is the ability to see beyond the range of the physical eye, extending in Anuruddha's, ca in Anuruddha's, ca Anuruddha's case to a thousandfold world system. This faculty, which we will discuss more fully below, is of a mundane, lokia, character, one whose acquisition does not necessarily entail that its possessor has gained realization of the Dhamma. Anuruddha attained the divine eye before he became an arahant, and to reach the heights he still had to overcome many inner obstacles. Three reports in the canon tell of his struggles. Once, when the venerable Anuruddha was living in the eastern bamboo park with two friends, his cousin Nandiya, and the Sakyan noble Kimbila, the Buddha visited them and inquired about their progress. Anuruddha then told him about a difficulty he had experienced in a very sublime meditation he had been practicing. He had perceived an inner light and radiance and had a vision of sublime forms. But that light and vision of forms disappeared very soon, and he could not understand the reason. The Buddha declared that when he was still striving for enlightenment, he too had met the same difficulty, but had discovered how to master it. He explained that to experience these subtle states in full and obtain a steady perception of them, one should free oneself from eleven imperfections, upakilesa. 
The first is uncertainty about the reality of these phenomena and the significance of the inner light, which might easily be taken for a sensory illusion. The second is inattention. One no longer directs one's full attention to the inner light, but disregards it, evaluating it as unremarkable or inessential. The third imperfection is lethargy and drowsiness. The fourth, anxiety and fright which occurs when threatening images or thoughts arise from the subconscious. When these imperfections have been mastered, elation may arise, which excites body and mind. Such exaltation is often a habitual reaction to any kind of success. When that elation has exhausted itself, one may feel emotionally drained and fall into inertia, a heavy passivity of mind. To overcome it, one makes a very strong effort, which may result in excess of energy, which is another upakilesa. On becoming aware of this excess, one relaxes and falls again into sluggish energy. In such a condition, when mindfulness is weak, strong longing may arise for desirable objects of the celestial or the human world, according to the focusing of the inner light, which had been widened in its range. This longing will reach out to a great variety of objects and thus lead to another imperfection, a large diversity of perceptions, be it on the celestial or human plane. Having become dissatisfied with this great diversity of forms, one chooses to contemplate one of them, be it of a desirable or undesirable nature. Concentrating intensity on the chosen object will lead to the 11th imperfection, the excessive meditating on these forms. So that's a very interesting list and interesting translations of the uh, 11 Upakilesa. There is another place where there's 16 Upakilesa, but this is, uh, so to list those, uncertainty, inattention, lethargy and drowsiness, anxiety and fright, inertia, excess of energy, sluggish energy, strong longing, diversity of perceptions, and then excessive meditating. Addressing Anuruddha and his two companions, the Buddha thus described vividly from his own experience the 11 imperfections that may arise in the meditative perception of pure forms, and he explained how to overcome them. And that's, for anybody interested, that's found in Majjhima Nikaya 128, Sutta 128. When Anuruddha had perfected himself more and more in the jhanas and in those refined meditative perceptions, he one day went to see the venerable Sariputta and said, friend Sariputta, with the divine eye that is purified, transcending human sight, I can see the thousandfold world system. Firm is my energy, unremitting. My mindfulness is alert and unconfused. The body is tranquil and unperturbed. My mind is concentrated and one-pointed, and yet my mind is not freed from the cankers, not freed from clinging. Thereupon Sariputta replied, Friend Anuruddha, that you think thus of your divine eye, this is conceit in you. That you think thus of your firm energy, your alert mindfulness, your unperturbed body, and your concentrated mind, this is restlessness in you that you think of your mind not being freed from the cankers. This is worry in you. It would be good indeed if you would abandon these three states of mind and, paying no attention to them, direct your mind to the deathless element, Nibbana. 
Having heard Sariputta's advice, Anuruddha again resorted to solitude and earnestly applied himself to the removal of those three obstructions within his mind. Sometime later, Anuruddha was living in the country of the Chetia people in the eastern bamboo grove. There, in his contemplations, it occurred to him that there were seven thoughts that should be cherished by a truly great man, Mahapurisa Vitaka. This Dhamma is for one with few wishes, not for one with many wishes. This Dhamma is for one who is content, not for one who is discontent. This Dhamma is for one bent on seclusion, not for one who is gregarious. This Dhamma is for one who is energetic, not for one who is lazy. This Dhamma is for one who is mindful, not for one who is confused. This Dhamma is for one who is concentrated, not for one who is unconcentrated. This Dhamma is for one who is wise, not for one who is dull-witted. When the Buddha perceived in his own mind the thoughts that had risen in Anuruddha's mind, he appeared before him in a mind-made body and, and applauded him. Good, Anuruddha, good. You have well considered seven thoughts of a great man. You may now also consider this eighth thought of a great man. This Dhamma is for one who inclines to non-proliferation, who delights in non-proliferation, not for one who inclines to worldly proliferation and delights in it. The Buddha then said that when Anuruddha contemplates those eight thoughts, he will be able to attain at will the four meditative absorptions. He would then no longer be affected by worldly conditions, but would regard the four simple requisites of a monk's life, robes, alms food, shelter, and medicines, in the same way as a layperson would enjoy luxuries. Such simple living would make his mind joyous and unperturbed and thus be helpful to his attainment of Nibbana. In parting, the Buddha advised Anuruddha to stay on at the eastern bamboo grove. Anuruddha did so, and during that same rainy season, he attained the consummation of his striving, arhantship, the undefiled liberation of the mind. At the hour of his attainment, the venerable Anuruddha uttered the following verses in which he expresses his gratitude to the master for helping him bring his spiritual work to completion. Having understood my mind's intention, the unsurpassed teacher in the world came to me by psychic power in the vehicle of a mind-made body. When the intention arose in me, then he gave me a further teaching. The Buddha who delights in non-proliferation gave me instructions on non-proliferation. So uh, mental pr proliferation is usually the word papancha in Pali. And then this one, the eighth thought of a great man is nipapancha, non-proliferation. Having understood the, his Dhamma, I dwelt delighting in his teaching. The three knowledges have been attained. The Buddha's teaching has been done. And so his verse is ending is similar to uh, Venerable Angulimala. Okay, and then we'll uh, continue on with Longda Mahabua, who interestingly in this narrative, he talks about some of these upakilesas arising as well in a very similar way to Venerable Anuruddha. So we ended with uh, Longda Mahabua's dream, and he relates it to Longbu Man, Tanajan Man, and uh, oh, that's a very auspicious dream. And uh, you'll get to the island of safety without any trouble. That's not the hard part. The hard part is here at the beginning. 
Taking his words to heart, I focused on my meditation with renewed diligence. My samadhi had been erratic for over a year by that time, so my meditation practice was constantly up and down. Again and again, it advanced to full strength, only to deteriorate as before. It wasn't until April that I found a new approach, focusing on my meditation theme in a new way that made my concentration really solid. From that point on, I was able to sit in meditation all night long. My mind was able to settle down fully, which allowed me to continue accelerating my efforts. Speaking of the difficulties in the beginning stages of practice that my vision had predicted, that constant struggle to bring the mind under control was the most difficult part for me. One day, during a time when I was extremely wary of Ajahn Mun, I lay down in the middle of the day and dozed off. As I slept, Ajahn Mun appeared in a dream to scold me. Why are you sleeping like a pig? This is no pig farm. I won't tolerate monks coming here to learn the art of being a pig. You'll turn this place into a pigsty. His voice bellowed, fierce and menacing, frightening me and causing me to wake up with a start. Dazed and trembling, I stuck my head out of the door expecting to see him. <laughs> I was generally very frightened of him anyway, but I had forced myself to stay with him despite that. The reason was simple. It wasn't the right thing to do. Besides, he had an effective antidote for pigs like me. <laughs> in a panic, I, took, I looked around in all directions, but I didn't see him anywhere. Only then did I breathe a bit easier. Later, when I had a chance, I told Ajahn Mun what had happened. He very cleverly explained my dream in a way that relieved my discomfort. You've just recently come to live with a teacher, and you are really determined to do well. Your dream simply mirrored your state of mind. That scolding you heard, reproaching you for acting like a pig, was the Dhamma, warning you not to bring pig-like tendencies into the monkhood and the religion. Following that, I took every opportunity to be more diligent. Since my arrival, I had heard Ajahn Mun talk a lot about the ascetic practices, such as the practice of accepting only the food received on one's alms round. He himself was very strict in observing these practices. So I vowed to take on special ascetic practices during the rains retreat, which I diligently maintained. I vowed to eat only the food I got while on my alms round. If anyone tried to put food in my bowl aside from the food I had received on my round, I wouldn't accept it and wouldn't be interested in it. I was unwilling to compromise my principles, which is why I wouldn't let anyone ruin my ascetic practice by putting food in my bowl. With the exception of Ajahn Mun, who I respected with all my heart, with him, I'd give in and let him put food in my bowl when he saw fit. Coming back from my alms round, I'd quickly put my bowl in order, taking just the small amount of food I planned to eat, because during the rains, I never ate my fill. I determined to take only about 60 to 70% of what would make me full. So I cut back my food consumption about 30 to 40%. It wasn't convenient to go without food altogether, since I always had duties involved within the group. I myself was like one of the senior monks in the group, <clears throat> in a behind-the-scenes sort of way, though I never let on. I was involved in looking after peace and order within the monastic community. I didn't have much seniority, just over ten reigns, but Ajahn Mun was kind enough to trust me in helping him look after the monks and novices. When I had put my bowl in order, I set it out of the way behind my seat, right against the wall next to a post. I put the lid on it and covered it with a cloth to make doubly sure no one would put any food in it. 
but when Ajahn Man put food in my bowl, he had a clever way of doing it. After I gave him the food that I prepared for him and had returned to my place, after we had chanted our blessing, and during the period of silence when we contemplated our food, that's when he'd do it, right when we were about to eat. At that time, I was absolutely determined to not let this observance be deficient. I wanted my practice to be complete, both in the letter of its strict observance and in the spirit of my determination to stick to it. But because of my love and respect for Ajahn Mun, I accepted his gifts, even though I did not feel comfortable about it. But he probably saw that there was pride lurking in my vow to observe this practice, so he helped bend it a little to give me something to contemplate, thus dissuading me from being too rigid in my views. Therein lies the difference between a principle in the practice and a principle in the heart. I was right in my earnestness to follow a strict practice, but at the same time I was wrong in terms of the levels of Dhamma that are higher and more subtle than that. Comparing myself with Venerable Ajahn Mun, I could see that we were very different. When Ajahn Mun looked at something, he comprehended it thoroughly and in a way that was just right from every angle in the heart. He never focused on only one side, but always used wisdom to see the broader picture. This lesson I learned many times while living with him. In that way, studying with Ajahn Mun wasn't simply a matter of studying teachings about the Dhamma. I had to adapt myself to the practices he followed until they were firmly impressed in my own thoughts, words, and deeds. Living with him for a long time allowed me to gradually observe his habits and his practices and to understand the reasoning behind them until that knowledge was firmly embedded in my heart. I felt a great sense of security while living with him because he himself was all Dhamma. At the same time, staying in his presence forced me to always be watchful and restrained. Ajahn Mun had a habit of chanting every night for several hours. Hearing him softly chanting in his hut one evening, I had the mischievous urge to sneak up and listen. I wanted to find out what he chanted at such length every night. But as soon as I crept up close enough to hear him clearly, his voice stopped and remained silent. This didn't look good, so I quickly backed away and stood listening from a distance. No sooner had I backed away than I heard the low cadence of his chanting start up again, now too faint to be hear heard clearly. So again I sneaked forward, and again he went silent. In the end, I never did find out what he was chanting. I was afraid that if I stubbornly insisted on eavesdropping, a bolt of lightning might strike and a sharp rebuke thunder out. Meeting him the next morning, I glanced away. I did not dare look him in the face but he looked directly at me with a sharp, menacing glare. I learned my lesson the hard way. Never again did I dare to sneak up and try to listen in on his chanting. I was afraid I would receive something severe for my trouble. I had heard that Ajahn Mun could read other people's minds, and this intrigued me. So one day I decided to test him to see if it was true. In the afternoon, I prostrated three times before the Buddha statue and set up a determination in my heart. Should Ajahn Mun know what I am thinking at this moment, then let me receive a clear and unmistakable sign that will dispel all my doubts. Later that afternoon, I went to Ajahn Mun's hut to pay my respects. When I arrived, he was sewing patches on his robes, so I offered to help. As soon as I approached him, his expression changed and his eyes grew fierce. Something didn't feel right. I tentatively put my hand out to take a piece of cloth, but he quickly snatched it from my grasp with a short grunt of displeasure. 
don't be a nuisance. Things didn't look good at all, so I sat quietly and waited. After a few minutes of tense silence, Ajahn Mun spoke. Normally, a practicing monk has to pay attention to his own mind and observe his own thoughts. Unless he's crazy, he doesn't expect someone else to look into his mind for him. In the lengthy silence that followed, I felt humbled and my mind surrendered to him completely. I made a solemn vow never again to challenge Ajahn Mun. After that, I respectfully asked permission to help him sew his robe, and he made no objection. When staying with Ajahn Mun, I felt as though the paths, fruitions, and Nibbana were nearly within my grasp. Everything I did felt solid and brought good results. But when I left him to go wandering in the forest alone, all that changed. Because my mind still lacked a firm basis, doubts began to arise. When doubts arose that I couldn't handle myself, I'd have to go running back to him for advice. Once he suggested a solution, the problem usually disappeared in an instant, as though he had cut it away from me. Sometimes I would leave him for only five or six days when a problem started bothering me. If I couldn't solve the problem the moment it arose, I'd head right back to him the next morning, because some of those problems were very critical. Once they arose, I needed advice in a hurry. Speaking of effort in the practice, my tenth rains, beginning from the April after my ninth rains retreat, was when I made the most intense effort. In all my life, I have never made a more vigorous effort than I did during my 10th reigns. The mind went all out, and so did the body. From that point on, I continued making progress until the mind became solid as a rock. In other words, I was so skilled in my samadhi that the mind was as unshakable as a slab of rock. Soon I became addicted to the total peace and tranquility of that samadhi state, so much so that my meditation practice remained stuck at that level of samadhi for five full years. Once I was able to get past my addiction to samadhi, thanks to the hard-hitting dhamma of Ajahn Man, I set out to investigate. When I began investigating with wisdom, progress came quickly and easily because my samadhi was fully prepared. The path forward was wide open and spacious, just as my vision had prophesied. By the time I reached my 16th Rains Retreat, my meditation was progressing to the point where mindfulness and wisdom were circling around all external sensations and all internal thought processes, meticulously investigating everything without leaving any aspect unexplored. At that level of practice, mindfulness and wisdom acted like in unison like a wheel of Dhamma, revolving in continuous motion within the mind. I began to sense that the attainment of my goal was close at hand. I remembered my earlier vision predicting attainment in that year and accelerated my efforts. But by the end of the retreat, I still had not attained. My visions had always prophesied accurately before, but I began to suspect that this one had lied to me. Being somewhat frustrated, I decided to ask a fellow monk who I trusted what he made of the discrepancy. He immediately retorted that I must calculate a full year from the beginning of the 16th Rains Retreat to the beginning of the 17th. Doing that gave me nine more months of my 16th year. I was elated by this explanation and got back to work in earnest. Having been gravely ill for many months, Ajahn Mun passed away shortly after my 16th Rains Retreat. Ajahn Mun was always close at hand and ready to help resolve my doubts and provide me with inspiration. When I approached him with meditation problems that I was unable to solve on my own, 
Those issues invariably dissolved away the moment he offered a solution. The loss of Ajahn Mun as a guide and mentor profoundly affected my hopes for attainment. Gone were the easy solutions I had found while living with him. I could think of no other person capable of helping me solve my problems in med meditation. I was now completely on my own. Fortunately, the current of Dhamma that flowed through my meditation had reached an irreversible stage. By May of the next year, my meditation had arrived at a critical phase. When the decisive moment arrived, affairs of time and place ceased to be relevant. All that appeared in the mind was a splendid natural radiance. I had reached a point where nothing else was left for me to investigate. I had already let go of everything, only that radiance remained. Except for the central point of the mind's radiance, the whole universe had been conclusively let go. At that time, I was examining the mind's central point of focus. All other matters had been examined and discarded. There remained only that one point of knowingness. It became obvious that both satisfaction and dissatisfaction issued from that source. Brightness and dullness, those differences arose from the same origin. Then in one spontaneous instant, Dhamma answered the question. The Dhamma arose suddenly and unexpectedly, as though it were a voice in the heart. Whether it is dullness or brightness, satisfaction or dissatisfaction, all such dualities are not self. The meaning was clear, let everything go. All of them are not self. Suddenly the mind became absolutely still. Having concluded unequivocally that everything without exception is not self, it had no room to maneuver. The mind came to rest, impassive and still. It had no interest in self or not self, no interest in satisfaction or dissatisfaction, brightness or dullness. The mind resided at the center, neutral and placid. It appeared inattentive, but in truth, it was fully aware. The mind was simply suspended in a still, quiescent condition. Then from that neutral, impassive state of mind, the nucleus of existence, the core of the knower, suddenly separated and fell away. Having finally been stripped of all self-identity, brightness and dullness and everything else were suddenly torn asunder and destroyed once and for all. In the moment when the mind's fundamental delusion flipped over and fell away, the sky appeared to come crashing down as the entire universe trembled and quaked. When all delusions separated and vanished from the mind, it seemed as if the entire world had fallen away and vanished along with it. Earth, sky, all collapsed in an instant. On May 15th of that year, the nine-year prediction from my earlier vision was fully realized. I finally reached the island of safety in the middle of the great wide ocean. Several years later, while I was staying at Ban Hoi Sai, I experienced another amazing vision. Floating high up in the sky, I saw all the Buddhas from the past stretched out before me. As I prostrated before them, all the Buddhas were transformed into life-size gold, solid gold statues. Pouring fragrant water, I performed a ritual bathing of all the golden Buddhas. While floating back to the ground, I saw an enormous crowd of people stretching to the horizon in every direction. At that moment, precious holy water began streaming from my fingertips and from the palms of my hands, 
spraying out in all directions until it had showered the entire congregation. As I floated above the ground, I looked down and saw my mother sitting in the crowd. Looking up, she implored of me, Son, are you going to leave? Are you leaving? I answered, When I finish, I'm going to leave, but you wait here. When I had finished spraying holy water in all directions, I floated down to the ground. My mother had spread a mat on the ground in front of her house, so I sat down and taught her the Dhamma. Reflecting on this vision later, I realized that I would have to ordain my 60-year-old mother as a white-robed nun. I wished to give her the best possible opportunity for spiritual development during her remaining years. So I quickly sent her a letter advising she begin preparing for a nun's ordination. My place of birth was located in Udon Thani province, several hundred miles from Ban Hoisai. Upon arriving at Ban Tat village, I found my mother eagerly anticipating her new life. Straight away, we set about preparing for her ordination. Recognizing that my mother was too old to wander with me through the forests, I looked for a suitable place in the vicinity of Bantad village to establish a forest monastery. When a maternal uncle and his friends offered a 70-acre piece of forested land about one mile south of the village, I gratefully accepted. I decided to settle there and build a monastery where both monks and nuns could live in peaceful seclusion. I instructed my supporters to build a simple grass-roofed bamboo meeting hall and small bamboo huts for the monks and nuns. The vision I had of teaching my mother foreshadowed the establishment of Bantad Forest Monastery, which completely changed my life forever. Before that, I roamed as I pleased. At the end of each rains retreat, I'd just disappear into the forest, content like a bird that has only its wings and its tail to look after. After that, I lived at my monastery and looked after my mother until the day she died. Eventually, monks began to gather around me in larger and larger numbers, and I taught them to be resolute in their practice and to maintain Ajahn Mun's lineage of renunciation, strict discipline, and intensive meditation. Although I have a reputation for being fierce and uncompromising, more and more practicing monks have gravitated to Bantad Forest Monastery over the years, transforming it into a thriving center of Buddhist practice. The enormous crowd of people in my vision began to become a reality. Gradually, little by little, my teaching began to spread until it extended far and wide. Now, people from across Thailand and around the world came to listen to Lungta Mahabua expound the Dhamma. Some travel here to uh, hear me talk in person. Some listen to recordings of my talks that are broadcast throughout Thailand on the radio and the internet. As I grew older, my exposure, to in Thai, my exposure in Thai public life continued to expand with each passing year. When the economic crisis hit in 1997, I stepped in to help lift the nation from the depths of darkness, that is, from greediness on one level of society and from poverty on the other. I wanted Thais to focus on the causes of the crisis so that, by knowing the causes, they could change their behavior to prevent such an event from recurring. So I used the Help the Nation campaign not only to raise gold for the national treasury, but more importantly as a means to spread the Buddha's teaching to a broader section of Thai society in an age when many Thai people are losing touch with Buddhist principles. I have tried my utmost to help society. Within my heart, I have no sense of courage and no sense of fear. 
No, su no such things are gain or loss, victory or defeat. My attempts to assist people stem entirely from loving compassion. I sacrificed everything to attain the supreme Dhamma that I now teach. I nearly lost my life in search of Dhamma, crossing the threshold of death before I could proclaim to the world the Dhamma that I realized. Sometimes I talk boldly as if I were a conquering hero, but the supreme Dhamma in my heart is neither bold nor fearful. It has neither gain nor loss, neither victory nor defeat. Consequently, my teaching emanates from the purest form of compassion. I can assure you that the Dhamma I teach does not deviate from those principles of truth that I myself have realized. The Lord Buddha taught the same message that I am conveying to you. Although I am in no way comparable to the Buddha, the confirmation of that realization is right here in my heart. All that I have fully realized within myself concurs with everything the Lord Buddha taught. Nothing that I have realized contradicts the Lord Buddha in any way. The teaching that I present is based on principles of truth which I have long since wholeheartedly accepted. That's why I teach people with such vigor as I spread my message throughout the world. That'll be the reading for today. I went on a little bit uh, longer, but it's Long uh, Mahabua, so it has a certain momentum to it. A few minutes if there's any questions, comments. I, I wanted to comment, I was quite moved reading that, that uh, the whole reason he started his monastery, Wat Bantad, was for his mother to, uh, to be able to teach, to, uh, out of compassion for his mother. That was really his whole, that was really the main reason. So it's quite, I uh, found that quite moving. There's also a lot of stories uh, that have come out of Wat Bantad, like a, Ajahn Mahabua's sister, one of his sisters, also ended up ordaining, being a mechi for the rest of her life. That that, that story was very moving. Um, uh, it makes me reflect a lot on Kama, but my question is actually, um, I think a basic one from the prior reading, um, and the Upakile says, excessive meditation. Could you explain? I'm not sure what the Pali is, and might have to look at the context of that. It's uh, excessive meditating, excessive focus on the object of meditation. Yeah. It's like over-focusing. It's, there's a, it's a interesting sutta where the Buddha talks about some of, it's one of the few suttas where the Buddha talks about the details of nimittas that were arising for him in his meditation where normally we just see the bare bones structure of the four jhanas, but in this particular one he's talking about there was forms arising that were indiscernible and then disappearing, then they were discernible and then they had, they had details to them and without details and he goes into all these descriptions of different things that were happening in his meditation that seems to he, he links that with Venerable Anuruddha is experiencing the same thing in his meditation. And so does that mean, just to involve, does that mean sort of uh, excessive focus? Is that almost like, like grasping at the object? Is that kind of what it means in that context of what he spoke of? It could be. It'd probably okay. be worth reviewing the sutta. Okay. Majjhima Nikaya 128. Have any uh, com comments on that? Just uh, not not from doing any research or anything, but just as a 
general impression, um, perhaps that tendency to focus so solely on the object that one loses one's uh, sampajanya, one's clear awareness, uh, all-around awareness, uh, by, by narrowing the attention uh, yeah. just too much. Yeah, that's what I take from it. It's like going out too much to the object. Okay, I think we can leave it there for this evening.